Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. You know, people are now going through what I went through so young that people, many friends of mine now, their parents are either by the diet or they're going through into dementia or goodness knows what. And you know, people are so panicked about it and, and how it overtakes the life and how difficult it is to look after. But um, sort of one day at a time. And the best thing you can do, of course, if you know somebody who's, who is, is a caretaker is to offer them a, a day to, to look after, to let them get out of the house and, and go and be sit with the person who's not well mm. and not be frightened of that, to do that, to, to keep an eye on somebody, give them some freedom, because that's the thing that... I found the most difficult when I were times when I was completely on my own with my mother for days on end. And I mean, I had help at different times. Of course, I had to because I wasn't there. But there were long, many periods where I didn't have. And that's where you can help in that situation. That was Jacqueline Bissett. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Apologize for the delay in today's episode. I have been uh, infected once more with some kind of sickness, as you can hear in my voice. But uh, we only have two more episodes left in the year, and uh, our last two are so lovely and and perhaps random to some of you. But neither guest uh, has ever done a podcast before. So um, this week... It is with the wonderful Jacqueline Bissett, and uh, next week we will end uh, this year's show with Keith David, 
But for today, I have a feeling you know who Miss Bissett is, and it is pronounced Bissett, um, not Bissett, and uh, she made clear of that when we sat down earlier this week. Uh, she is a wonderful, wonderful actress who got her start in the 60s and has pretty much consistently worked since then. She has collaborated with everyone from George Cooker to Roman Polanski, Francois Truffaut, John Huston, uh, so many wonderful, wonderful directors. The biggest titles you have unquestionably seen her in, uh, Bullet, Day for Night, Casino Royale. She has been in so many movies that are landmark pieces of cinema that sitting down with her for an hour is such a joy. It's just a history lesson in film. Most recently, she is in a new film called Asher. It stars Richard Dreyfuss and Ron Perlman. And uh, here's a bit from the trailer. I'll be sent down another job for you. You and a couple of guys. What is it you do for a living? I'm a contractor. What kind of contracts? Three jobs. I need someone I can rely on. I need someone with history. We have history. What happens in our business when you get to home? Well, there's no retirement home for us. Did you ever think about doing something else? What if I told you I wanted to take you out of here right now? We're gonna have a future together. I just killed a man in the bathroom. I'm afraid if we don't leave right now, they're gonna call the cops. Does that happen to you a lot? Anyway, if you've been a fan of Miss Bissett's work over the years, uh, like I have, if you like Day for Night especially, I think you will enjoy this episode. It was an absolute honor. And, uh, Conversations like this one with someone like Jacqueline Bissett, you know, the show is really, really hard to do every week uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. And conversations like this make it worthwhile. Makes me smile, actually. So um, I'm sitting outside. It's Sunday morning and... I'm excited for you folks to uh, take a listen. So, have a good week. And uh, here, finally, is Jacqueline Bissett. Something that I found really fascinating, you are born in 1944. And... In the early 60s, uh, your career starts to take off, somewhere around 64, 65, I believe. Well, I did my first small kind of extra part in 65. Right, and then you do Polanski's film Mm -hmm. in 66. No, I think it was 65. 65 also, okay. Mm, I think so. Good. We have to be about facts in this day and age because... I think it was 65. I also saw that at the time, you know, I was curious, what was it like to, to feel... As if your your desire to be an actor was coming to fruition at that age. Oh, I didn't consider myself an actor at all at that point. It took me a long time before I would even use the word I'm an actor. What would you say to people when they're like, what do you do? I'd say I do some acting. You do some acting? I do some acting. Right. And I was, there's two words that were very frightening to me. One was actor and one was the word artist. 
<laughs> Which I feel it gets misused, and I feel you have to earn it. Is, okay. And you didn't feel like you had earned it at that oh, point? Oh, I certainly hadn't earned anything at that time. I was very young, and I had no formal training, and I uh, had a very clear view of what I thought an artist was, and it would mean years of working in a certain direction and, and developing a craft and, um, and a point of view mm. and a freedom and an honesty. Which you feel takes years to, to find. Well, no, you could have it, not, not years necessarily, but I mean, I, for within my own personal life, I felt, yeah, I have to do some groundwork and have knowledge and develop your culture and mm-hmm. be, have a point of view. Because I think when people, sometimes in conversation, somebody, maybe they're talking about a play or a film or something, and somebody says, this is a piece of whatever, rubbish, and you feel a reaction which is anger, which they say they wipe it out from, they take it out of the the world as if it's rubbish. And you say, well, I'm sorry, but who are you? You know, what have you done Mm -hmm. to say this is rubbish? Who are you? What makes your opinion? Why are you spouting your opinion? Right. (laughs) And um, it used to anger me. Now, the fact that I might have the same reaction used to make me question, why do I have the right to say what if this is good or not good? Okay, you like or you don't like. I don't mind people saying I don't like it or everything, but when people say this is rubbish, that used to anger me and still does because to do any piece of work, really good work, takes a lot, a lot of all aspects of your, of of life, and and so I feel like even bad work takes a lot of energy. Totally, it's, it's all it's and nobody's so draining. It's draining and it's, it involves personal commitment and. Um, People don't set off to do bad work. So, and I always used to imagine New York cafes, and I'd say, "There's all these people who are very hip, trendy, blah blah blah, all sitting around criticizing everything. That's the modus operandi: right. criticize everything that comes out, as if you've seen it, you've wiped it out, you love it, you don't like it." And they used to annoy me. I, and I thought, I don't aspire to that. On the contrary, I don't aspire to that. Mm. There's something you said um, in an interview from about. I think 15 years ago that I was struck by which is that you were you were in the beginning stages of your career and maybe even now a little trepidatious about auditions but that you felt at a young age you had an understanding of life an experience because you said uh you said but I felt I had a certain degree of knowledge about life which was really on at that time not about my life but about life I was quite responsible, probably because I was looking after my mother. I'd already been looking after her for five or six years by that time. I was interested in, in, in your sort of early development. You had to become an adult maybe before most people do. Is that probably, fair? Probably, yeah, probably. Mm. How did that help you in terms of, of creating something honest in art at that age? Well, I don't know if I did. I mean, I don't. I did not, not, I'm not saying that I did create anything art. I just. Okay. I had enough um, modesty, I suppose, to, to not think that I was going to be doing anything great. And I was. You know, we we all have instincts about ourselves. I just have. I, my friends would tell me that I was wise beyond my years, and I didn't know why. But I had a kind of a kind of a wisdom. I. I really don't know what to say to these these questions because um, I, I ask me another question and we'll come back to it. Okay, uh, I, I was I was going through 
um, I know you have talked about day for night probably too many times. Mm-hmm. But uh, you have to understand, as someone who is obsessed with movies and, and, and is making them myself, although not as well as Francois, that film has meant so much to me mm-hmm. for so long. And uh, at that time when you got that role, I know the whole story mm-hmm. of you dancing and them coming to find you and yeah. the agent on Anson. Yeah. It's a really wonderful story. I want to go back. When you first got news that you were going to do this, how did that make you feel? Because I know French cinema and Italian cinema was so important to you growing yeah. up. Well, it felt maybe feel, um, what's the word, when you've been, it kind of confirmed my existence. Validated. Validated, yeah. And um, surprised, really, really surprised, because I was very conscious of his world, but I couldn't imagine that that he could be conscious of anything that I'd done. And when actually I did finally uh, ask him what he'd seen me in, he told me he'd seen me, he'd been in some cinema, near some cinema at some point in south of France. I don't know what he was doing there, but he'd seen me in a film where I played an amphetamine addict. I was a little taken aback. And and one other film, which had no resemblance to what he asked me to do. I thought, wow, I came into somebody's conscience, and that was him. (laughs) That was mind-blowing. He would talk about actors with great enthusiasm, certain actors, not necessarily ones I particularly admired, but he would talk (laughs) about them. No, he would talk about them with great reverence, certain actors. And I was... I didn't know what drew him to those particular actors. What's making you recall that? What's making me recall it? Yeah, recall that he would talk about actors with certain reverence. Is that sort of the memory you well, have? Well, no, it's just, it's just another thing that I haven't spoken about. I'm just thinking I'll give you the same old conversation that you've heard <laughs> in ten interviews. No, I just that was something new, a thought that came. Yeah. So something surprising for me. When he had great reverence for Hitchcock, of course. Right. And um, Jean Renoir. And... Um, Sometimes people surprise you, though, because I remember reading something where Stanley Kubrick said his favorite movie is this film called The Jerk with Steve Martin, yeah. which is a lovely movie. But I remember reading that as a kid and being like, what, really? <laughs> of all the things? Yeah. Stanley Kubrick's favorite film is this like kind of... <laughs> light, light film. Yeah, a light film. Mm. Had you noticed that? And you've worked with so many people. I was thinking... When you think back on Francois, is there something he taught you or something? Oh, he taught me a lot. He said to me, you're a very realistic actress. He said, I'm not particularly interested in realism. And I want you to just do as I say and don't question it. Just do it, you Mm -hmm. know. And there were moments during the shooting of Day for Night where I felt very muddled because combination of trying to speak French, which I didn't speak, and these sometimes unattached directions that seemed to, I felt extremely awkward, self-conscious, and I, when I, I did exactly what he said, and I tried to get it into without being questioning and finding motivations and stuff, and when I saw the film, I was absolutely enchanted by what it did. In a, in a, it wasn't real, but it was totally f- effective. Right. But I think you do come across in that film as 
the sort of anchor, the emotional anchor of the piece. I do feel like you have a, a very, you almost ground the film in some sort of reality, even though you're like this big movie star coming in and there's paparazzi. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. There's something about, especially your relationship with, um, I think he was a therapist. Is he a therapist? He's a doctor of some kind. My, my husband. He's your husband, yeah. Oh, he was wonderful, that actor. He was just wonderful. He was wonderful looking with God, blue eyes. So stunning. Stunning. And the way he looked at me, those few little shots, those moments of great reassurance. And I thought, and then later when I think back, I think, golly, this silly woman I was and had, an, had this silly little sexual affair with this young actor when I was married to such a wonderful person who <laughs> understood me so well. But it was a, uh, it was a silliness, but um, it served the film at the time. And that situation, I was ashamed in some part of me in the character. <laughs> I was. But it's a character. I, I mean. know, but I still thought, what a silliness I am mm. in that character. Can I ask you a larger question? At that age, at that point, how did you feel about yourself as an actress? Did you feel like that character at all? No, I didn't feel like it. And when... Uh, Obviously, he did, he had this image of me because he asked me to bring my movie star wardrobe with me. And I said, a movie star wardrobe? <laughs> that is the antithesis of the way I lived and worked and, and in Hollywood. I lived in a, um, I lived on the beach in a little, what was an originally a um, converted packing crate for a grand piano. Mm, so not movie star Hollywood. No, and it was tiny, tiny, tiny. And I lived there with, a, with an actor. And um, I had those sort of hippie dresses that were long hippie dresses and I was always cooking and trying to get the sand out of my hair and it was the exact opposite and so when he said bring your movie star wardrobe I said lord above what what do I do where would I even find it and the shops were awful in LA at the time there was mm. nothing very really glamorous there was showy stuff and there right. was this is the early 70s um yes there was one shop which had European clothing and it was called Charles Gallet and I thought that would be the only place that I could think of, that I knew of. There probably were others, but I didn't know of them where I might find. So I went there and I bought three outfits. And I knew that he had conservative taste. I knew it wasn't, I'd been told that or read so, somewhere. Mm -hmm. So when I arrived with them, he actually liked all of them. But I had never spent so much money in my life <laughs> on, on, I mean, probably. Did the film pay you back for the dresses? No, they didn't, no. No, but they used them all, which was something. Good. So that was a... And I was very interested in getting that right. I did not want to... I didn't know what he thought of as a... Because they weren't movie star dresses. They were nicely well-cut clothes, but they were not whatever... Whatever he meant, I, I seem to have got it. But the person who had movie star clothes was Al Valentina Cortese, who had the most incredible clothes I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> she actually had a lady's maid traveling with her of course. to do the ironing and these incredible pleated satin chiffon exotic incredible clothes with jewels and scarves she put over her head and she was so elegant and so Italian and amazing she was just amazing I saw the film fairly recently and I saw her and I thought gosh I was probably about that age that she must have been when she did the film now that I am, or well, I'm older now than she was at that time, but mm -hmm. I, I tried to put it in context with what she gave to the film, which was a wonderful quality she had. Mm. So I think she's still alive. Was the making, is she really? Mm -hmm. is, was the making of the movie as joyous as 
the final product? Was like was that the, well, the it was, design it was of quite it? fun, but it was you know, I think it was pretty fun. But it was also for me it was as I didn't speak French, it was a constant anxiety. And if he changed a word in the dialogue, I was really sweating. which he did a lot, right? No, he didn't because I warned him. I said you can't change the words. So you <laughs> give me decide on them and give them to me at least two days before, because I I'll mess it up mm. and just to. But the biggest thing that probably calmed me down is he said, because I was going, you know, I was going, bonjour sometimes, you know, getting so nervous. So he said, no, you're, you're not French in the story. You don't mm-hmm. have, you can make mistakes. Right. I said, oh, right. Yeah, you, you have a it sort of took out. The, took it off my shoulders and yeah. just, I relaxed. Here's one way I think it seems like you're similar to that character. You have this interview in 1982 with Roger Ebert, which is really, I think, the best piece of writing about you and your work. And in a lot of ways, I don't know if you remember this, but it was in 1982 um, in Chicago. And you said, I find that I have an intense obsession with making films. I not only love to make films, I perhaps need to make films. And I think that character is a little similar in that way. She'll, she's willing to do anything for the production of the movie. Uh, I don't know about anything. Let's not get carried away. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, got, I got carried away. Look, you, you called me out. That's yeah. fair. But do you think that stands true, that, that, that you're obsessed with making? Well, I've seen some wonderful films in my life, and I would love to leave behind me when I go, when I go some bits of work that give me, the, this, give me what has been given to me by certain actresses and filmmakers. So... I think I have a quite a developed sense of what filmmaking is about mm-hmm. and getting the, whatever you're going, whatever's going on in the set is irrelevant, really. What only matters is on the film, on the screen. So that process of getting through the, the, the hellos and the joy and the arm holding and the kisses and the ding and the eating and the fun and the blah, 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 and the togetherness is it getting onto the screen because there's a lot of delusion Dis, no, what's the word? Delu- yes, delusion goes on. Yeah. And, and people laughing at their own jokes and watching the rushes and thinking they're, they're doing a brilliant thing. You have to be sort of cold-blooded lucidity you need to gather the bits to put them together in a film, I, is my opinion. So, that's, so that side of me is, is rather clear on that. I, you know, I can cut through all the that other side, which is the fun stuff, and get to the point. I remember when I was doing Rich and Famous, which was a very difficult project for me, not because it wasn't, wasn't a beautiful project, and I enjoyed doing it. And Well, you were also was, producing it. I was a co-producer, and but the process was full of conflict, and, um, and I just had to swallow and bite, you know, shut my mouth sometimes and just what get on with it. What was the conflict? The conflict was really a sort of a power struggle really between um, my partner, uh, the producer, and uh, the fact that he had been unable to get the project going and they'd come to me and he'd been trying for, I believe, for about five years. And um, I was going through a period when I was had a little bit of clout mm-hmm. and I was looking for things that I could get involved in, reading a lot. And I think he was very threatened by me because I was getting a lot of attention and he was the actual producer and I was just a co-producer. But I got the, we got the, with me and my clout of the time and with Candy and everything, we got the film on, up and 
And I thought this was a very joyous combination thing of sharing sharing everything, you know, and I didn't know that he was competitive with me and and it was very, very difficult. And I and it was a very growing up experience. And I got on okay with Kukor up to a point. But he was very, very enamored of the material, as we all were. We were all delighted to use Gerald Ayer's phraseology and, and um, he was the writer. Um, it was wonderful that was doing that. But um, I've forgotten what the question was. No, I, you answered it in a lot of did ways. Did I? Oh, did I? Yeah, okay. you did. Okay. I was interested. Did you find that as your career sort of, you know, excelled and, and continued to grow, you know, later into the 70s and into the 80s, that sort of competitiveness that you're talking about, did you feel that amongst your peers? And I, your don't, I didn't use the word competitiveness. On the contrary, I don't think it's about being competitive at all. No, not, not you. Sorry, the the um, your producer. Oh well, it, well, I think it was just plain jealousy, mm. and I don't think he could help himself. He just had. I don't know. He didn't, or maybe I didn't. I tried to look at it and say, "What is? What was my part in this? How did I bring this situation to being such an unpleasant situation for myself?" Did I participate? I always believe you've got to look at um, everything and say, how did I participate in this fight, mm. not fight, whatever, or the good part, and look at the, try and be cold-blooded about it. And um, I really couldn't come up with an answer because I was, I maybe was goofy. I maybe I was goofy <laughs> with pleasure, with, with with enjoyment. I don't know. I don't think so. What does that mean, goofy? Goofy, like a little bit off. You know, in a sort of state of sort of happiness where you're a bit daft. You know what daft is? Uh-huh. <laughs> a little bit, you know. No, I think, it, I think it was a man-woman thing. I think it was a men, the men business side of the boys club and all that stuff. And, and I was a young woman and there were very few actresses who were getting involved in production. Right. And you had sort of entered this arena that... Yes, and I think, you know, instead of being sort of good old Jackie, she also was a good sport, well, you know... <laughs> There was a sense of, um, I don't know what it was. Anyway, whatever it is, I I thought about it a great deal. And I would hate to repeat it. So whatever, if I haven't, that's why I've never really got involved in that capacity again. I thought, I can't, this is not good for me. Health-wise, it's not good for me. And I look at now, lots of people are doing this and very successfully. So maybe if if I live long enough and uh, if I get lucky with material and find something, maybe I'll get to do that again but I rather doubt it because mm. like you know time is so time consuming and if you don't if you're living in stress it's not good for you yes I heard uh, there's a quote you have that I really love it says if you want to look good you gotta forgive I totally believe in forgiveness yeah where does that come from it's common sense <laughs> yes it's common sense but I guess uh, I guess I'm thinking for myself um, it's hard sometimes to forgive, especially when the thing you're trying to forgive is uh, painful or daunting. Oh, no question. I guess no question. It takes time, but it, it's got to be, um, I think you need to make it on the top of the list as a thing to work towards rather than saying, I'm going to slay that M. M- <coughs> you're, allowed, you're allowed to curse on here, actually. Yes, I am. I am. Yes, you're allowed. I am. You, you can okay. say whatever you want. Well, 
yeah, I don't need to. I think they've got the, you've got the point. <laughs> um, you've got to look for the flowers opening, you know. I don't know. Just... Mm. I, your body, you know, when you're acting, you don't. Your body doesn't know what's going on. So you've got to. Often, you take yourself into territory where you are angry or stressed or whatever, or you take your body there with you. He doesn't know. So after a really dangerously out there scene, you can get very messed up, and you all that adrenaline and whatever that stuff is that's running in your body is running. And if you put the flowers first, I think you have a chance of being healthier and. Uh, not in a Pollyanna way. I don't mean it in a Pollyanna way. Just mm-hmm. I do think. Well, obviously, people who live very long time and have aged well, they they tend to glow from the inside. You see those kind of faces in countries like Greece and incredible old faces that are just wonderful. And you say they're strong, but they're generous, and their faces are have a beauty. Mm-hmm. Not a cosmetic beauty, but a great beauty. And there's... Um, a beauty in character. Yeah, yeah I, I feel that. I, my father um, encouraged me to have character, and he aged well. He looked amazing. At, well, he wasn't that old, but he did look very interesting looking and handsome before he died. Mm. I have um, a, a question about directors in your place in these movies because I think a lot of people have done uh, retrospectives of your work I'm sure you are aware no very few people have done retrospectives they always get the same movies out it's always bullet 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 and bullet and I go we've just had another anniversary and I said please I had a tiny part in that and I I have to say bullet it's a it's a fine movie. No, but it's just it and just gets too much to get yes. all this. You know, I I'm not even going to bring no, bullet no, up here. No, um, it's not even on my. You can even look <laughs> at my my file. No, okay, I have, I have no. nothing about no. bullet here. Um, I have this quote that I found of yours that is really really wonderful. I thought was was funny and insightful. You said all directors are totalitarian people. Kukor, Polanski, Lestrafoe, but in his own way, he was quite precise. They were all older directors, and they were tough and totalitarian. It was always very intimidating. I want to go back. When you're I don't work- remember using the word totalitarian, but I, that's, that's, that's odd. I don't remember using that word, but oh, I'd wor- say autocratic. I would tend to say autocratic. But you know what? We can change it with autocratic. Yeah. I yeah. don't even say totalitarian. So yeah. I think it's autocratic. Okay, we'll go back. Mm. I'll, I'll email the people who published this piece. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll them change it. Nevertheless, with all these directors, you worked with so many older men. Yes, <laughs> and you were a younger woman at the time, and yeah. then then just a woman in the world. Was it hard to find your voice on these sets? Was it find hard to find your voice in these characters to claim some sort of autonomy? Well, some of the projects, yes, some not. But I just learned, you know, I just learned early that. Don't wait till you get to the set to ask a thousand questions. You, know, you do not have the ear of the director at that point. He's completely busy with stuff. He's busy directing traffic. He's busy doing all the horrible, mundane things of having to keep a film going, schedules and everything. And his mind is not open. So if you try and have the conversations before you get there, and if not, just go for it. Just do what you want to do. 
and don't ask, shall I do this or that? Because the guy can't process process it in time. You know, so that's I learned early. So I just and often feel that um, one can work uh, very well if you've got a good script. With one can work very well almost without a director in terms of the acting. Of course, what happens when you put it together? <laughs> <laughs> is another matter, and who's editing it and everything. But if you've got a well-written thing, it goes by itself. His question, I remember John Houston, he knew where to put the camera. That was a very, very key thing. He would actually leave the set and sometimes where I did a thing called Under the Volcano. And I made the mistake once of saying to John Houston, in one scene towards the end of the film, I really felt I needed a close-up. There were very few close-ups. And I said to him, Mr. Houston, I really feel that... You need to see what Yvonne is going through at this moment. And he said, oh, and do you want to direct the picture too? And, of course, I was slightly embarrassed. I said, no, but he looked at me like I didn't know if it was going to be a yes or a no. And he didn't do the close-up. And when I saw the film, I said, I didn't need the close-up. So that was an interesting. But <laughs> with that came... I like your accent, uh, sort of reinterpreting his voice. <laughs> I thought that was good. But um, the combination of Houston and uh, George Cukor, I learned a lot between the two. Basically, more than anything I had been attracted to before, which was the sort of Cassavetes-type close-up, Ingmar Bergman close-up, very, very extreme close-ups, and the skin being very much the forefront of the the female persona. they pulled back and they didn't, they included the body in the way they shot. So there were scenes from um, Under the Volcano, there were scenes from Rich and Famous, particularly when I was in the New York part in the apartment when I saw body language that I didn't know I was doing. And I just thrilled me hmm. because it, told, it said so much more than, the, than, than I had knew I was giving. And I, and actually, as I've got learned this, I've actually been on films where most actors are saying, can I have a close-up? I'm kind of going, could you back off? Could you back off? And they're going, what? Could you back off? I'd like you to see my hands. I'd like you to see, you know. Right. And they, they're really surprised. Because I've, the, of course, also screens are getting bigger. Right. That's part of it, too. But you uh, want the full body to see the whole... Not the full body necessarily. Well, I don't necessarily need to... Enough to give more than enough just... To, yeah, but also to believe in your body and also to find the ease that you get. When you start, your hands are sort of, what the hell do I do with my right. hands? Can I have pockets in my outfit? Well, I've thought about this the whole time because I have had my hands here, here, and I've noticed your hands... You've been fiddling with a bottle You've top. been fiddling, and I, and I thought, well, maybe she's a little nervous or anxious or something, or maybe... It's just a thing she does. I wasn't really I just, sure. No, it's just my fingers tingle, which is why I do that. They do. Mm. Yeah, I, it's interesting because body language says so much. So much. And yet most movies these days, it is like reverse shot coverage of your face here, their face mm-hmm. here. And there is no sense of time or space or... There's quite a lot of that. And And... They're missing it, though. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends on the material, on what you're doing, story you're telling. But I was this was about my own thing of having confidence because for I was just like everybody else, you know, walking and talking at the same time was a, was an issue. Mm-hmm. It sounds silly, but no, it, it doesn't it's, sound silly. It's just and then you one day you forget about your hands and 
and you don't need to have pockets in your or a handbag or a prop or something. To, you just are in the essence of where you are. Was Under the Volcano the movie where you felt like you had confidence as an actor? No, I, no, I didn't have any particularly more confidence because John Huston used to not speak to me hardly at all. And the first few days he didn't speak to me at all. And I said to him one day, Mr. Houston, I said, is everything all right? He said, yes, my dear, I'll tell you if it isn't. I said, okay. I would have liked to have had a pat on the back occasionally because it was a very macho world. Mm -hmm. There were virtually no women around. He wasn't open to dialogue. What he was when we went, before we went to, to start the film, I went to see him in Mexico, which was a very intimidating journey and a very <laughs> intimidating moment, but I uh, got through it. It's a long story. I come got you have. I don't think you have time for it. But actually, um, we do have time do? for it. Yeah, we do. Well, the script for Under the Volcano had gone through torturous years of many, many people trying to write the script. I think you know, a tremendous amount of years. I'm not sure. Anyway, finally, they'd got the script, and the script was. He was always working. Everything had to be very linear. It was always right to the story. Never no fluff on the sides. No going into the little. Rivers, rivulets. It was the story, the story, the story. Mm -hmm. And my story was, I'd read the book and she was virtually not in the book. And I said, this is a curious thing because I'm playing somebody who is always in the eye of the drunk. I'm never really completely clear. He's always through his eyes anytime I'm there. Mm. It's through his desire or through his fog, alcoholic fog. So I've got to find a tone that brings me to be what he re I represent to him in, from the past, but also not to be too present because I'm never really, in, you know, and it wasn't an easy tone. Mm -hmm. So I went to see him. I was a bit not happy with the script. And as I got onto the plane, I got delivered a script and I read it on the plane. And when I got off the plane in Puerto Vallarta, I was met by a little boat and a person, a lady, and she said, get on the boat and we we're going to go to the place where he lived, Las Caletas. We did the very bumpy trip to the, uh, the thing. I, it was completely deserted. There was no one around. I was actually quite scared. She gave me a tuna fish sandwich, showed me to my room, which was a kind of part, part of a... There were various buildings, all empty, sort of large stone type floor, brick floor, painted wood, painted bricks with, with wire just filling in the windows, gauze, not proper windows. You have and, an impeccable memory. Mm, oh, my God. I could draw it if I... Um, and she said, I'm leaving the island. She said she was his assistant. And she said, I'm going off and someone will contact you later. So I sat and they were, I could hear the bugs creeping around and the crackling of the, the life in the, in the jungle. And anyway, about five o'clock, um, a young woman came, a little Mexican girl came over and said, Mr. Houston's waiting for you, and he's in one of these compound buildings. And I had realized that he'd sorted out the problems of my script, so I didn't know what to talk to him about. Life? Well, no, I was just talking about, I was frightened, and I didn't know, and he took me to this comp compound, and I, I'd been told that, there, that a big snake lived in there. So I was a bit nervous about this, that he had a pet snake. And, and uh, so this young woman who came sort of scurried, scurried through the various paths up to this building. And there was, was John Houston. And we sat there and I, 
I thought, crikey, I haven't, what am I going to discuss with him? He <laughs> solved all the problems in the script because that was the reason I was both down. Yeah. Anyway, we started talking about alcoholism. And that was a really good subject because God knows we all knew enough people, drunks and, and, and carry, you know. So that kept us really in good, in good speech till about eight o'clock, at which point I said, can I have a drink? Right. <laughs> I absolutely was worn out with the anxiety. And he, he, we went from that compound, we went to another compound where this young lady who had come to meet me had prepared some food. And I, I had heard about John Houston's exotic lifestyle and love of glamour and wonderful food and everything. And I, I visited the larder the food larder, which was full of cans of uh, corn, can, tin, tin pineapple, tin corn, white mayonnaise, and all the most ordinary food you've ever seen in your life, all in one place. And we had this extremely ordinary meal. And he was very pleasant. He was very pleasant. But I was in shock because it was because you used to read about him living in this house in Ireland, you know, that he had this incredible lifestyle, very grand. And, and he told me about how he... He didn't have all his art anymore. He'd, he'd given his paintings to his one of his ex-wives or several of his ex-wives. And he, he seemed like a man who'd had it all but really didn't relate particularly to all that physical stuff, the, those things anymore. And it was absolutely lovely. And then he, very shortly after it, he went off to his area and I was left in that space. And suddenly the lights went off. I was actually in the larder at the time. Mm. And the lights went off. And I had to find my way back to the, um, the building that I was sleeping in. And it was totally nerve-wracking. And so now I was, I wanted to go home at that point. But I had to go through till the next day and then another day. And um, I'm, I'm drifting with the story. But it was... Um, Something about it sticks into your head because you you, you recall it with such detail. I do. It was so. There were little creatures, you know, crossing the path all over the place, and I was I was really frightened. But he was wonderful in a way. He and the next morning we went and we swam together. And you know, and I'd been so frightened of him when I first met him. I met him long, long, long before that. It was for some other film, and I went. I was in London, and I went for an audition. And um, he was standing by the door of the Muse House, where I, where we, where the auditions were to happen. And he turned and looked at me. And I said, "Oh my God, this is a dangerous man! What a dangerous man! That smile." And that rem that stayed with me. That it really definitely stayed with me. That he had power. He had legendary power and authority about him and was very attractive too in a way but the eyes did not warm up the smile was there but the eyes were still cool and they never did warm up I, they didn't really ever warm up no not with me I don't, never saw him well it's not true and I did see him sometimes talking to his children he would sort of lean forward he'd sit and then he'd lean forward and put his hands on his knees and, and talk to his daughter or no, it was a fascinating but it was a very male group right and it was very, very, it was very um, snobby also. It was all very grand journalists coming down. There was no, no, no riffraff. It was all sort of writers from the top papers and everything. The whole thing was, I thought, oh, I didn't know if I was happy to be there or not. <laughs> I really didn't. I just really wanted to have a girlfriend to talk to. And I, I never got... Um, I never got sick in Mexico. I was one of the few people who didn't get sick. So I just said, well, just drink more tequila. And, very lucky. And, and I did fine. I get sick every time I go. <laughs> um, since we only have 
I guess six minutes now. Okay. I have to ask some bigger questions. Let's just mention Ashraf. Come on, let's get it. Let's well, I'm going to mention it in the intro are, and the yes, yes it's yes. going to get properly plugged. I okay. promise. Okay. In regards to your career, I'm looking at it as someone who doesn't know you very well. Yeah. We've known each other for 40 minutes now. I know throughout your work, you have to be, you know, uh, you're a caretaker for your mother. And I I'm, was. She's she's no longer alive. You were uh, up up until 1999, I mm-hmm. believe. I guess just person to person, I'd like to know how did you manage those things to to work so hard, which you did, while still really having to take care of this person who brought you here? Well, you just work it out, you know, day by day. It was not easy. There were times when I would just be desperate, but um, cause she and she was tr- tricky. She was tricky, and she wasn't always kind. But she was she was always capricious. But she had a. But a wonderful thing about it is that it taught me a tremendous amount about humanity and um, taught me patience. Gave me a much more enhanced sense of humor because there's considerable humor around the subject of dementia, even though it sounds rude to say so, but it's true if you can take it right. And um, and I, I I think it's been a most brilliant uh, journey to have gone on. It lasted it lasted forty years. Mm-hmm. Almost forty years she got, she was ill, and it, it it definitely enhanced my humanity. You know, people are now going through what I went through so young that people, many friends of mine now, their parents are either either died or they're going through into dementia or goodness knows what. And you know, people are so panicked about it and and the, how it overtakes the life and how difficult it is to look after. But um, sort of one day at a time. And the best thing you can do, of course, if you're in somebody, you know, somebody who's got this. Is, is a caretaker is to offer them a, a day to, to look after, just to hang, let them get out of the house and, and go and be sit with the person who's not well mm. and not be frightened of that, to do that, to, to keep an eye on somebody, give them some freedom, because that's the thing that I found the most difficult when I were times when I was completely on my own with my mother for days on end. And I mean, I had help at different times. Of course, I had to because I wasn't there. But there were long many periods where I didn't have. And that's why you can help in that situation. Mm. You have, I have to say, quite a remarkable clarity about you in a way that <laughs> like your thoughts are so uh, matter-of-fact and, and, and honest and um, a sense that you have figured out something that I think a lot of us perhaps have not. Does that make any well, sense? Well, I might be in a bit in advance on some of those, those subjects, but certainly not in others. <laughs> I also had a moment, I had a, I had a um, transformative moment in my early life in 1972. I read a book and it gave me the most extraordinary experience of, of seeing light and uh, changing me. So I think I had a little bit of a, a, an enlightenment early on. Mm. I can't explain it any, any other way. And as I've talked to certain people about it, there's no question that I was a changed person when I read this book and I saw this light. I mean, a phys- like a transfiguration type thing, which sounds all very California and, you know. No, it um, sounds fine to me. That combined with the other stuff. So I think maybe it, I, it was, the book was about losing your ego, mm. trying to lose the ego to, to, to reach. It was called uh, The Mirror of Light by Rodney Collins. And I think it's out of print now, but it was very interesting. Oh. As I'm writing it down. Well, I don't know. You can. F- I found it. It was a very, very old copy that I had found in a French bookstore, the Shakespeare Company in Paris. 
It had been heavily underlined and it was obviously vibrant. If you had photographed this book, it was full of, it emanated this book. It was so full of vibes. Quite extraordinary. I sound nuts telling you this. I don't think you but, sound nuts. Um, and then I, I gave it to a friend to borrow. Of course, I never got the book back. <laughs> devastated. I was devastated. Oh, and then I, years later, I found the new copy of the book mm. in London, a shop. No, no vibes at all. Nothing. The book was just a piece of book. It was just zapped. They got, yeah, you didn't, it, but you I put can't that replace moment that. as being a very key moment in my development. Um, very broadly, you're uh, 74 now? Yes. There's still uh, lots of time to make really beautiful things that I uh, suspect you will do. I'd like to know just today, right now, in this moment, how would you like to move forward? What do you want to do with the rest of your work? Well, I'm, going to do, I'm working on something quite interesting. Uh, in fact, it's eating my Christmas period because I've got so much to words to learn. I'm going to do a script with a young filmmaker. It's called uh, Lauren and Rose. I'm playing Rose. And it's sort of, in a way, it's a two-part two part. Two part characters. There are other characters are there, but it's basically the two, the two people who talk in a restaurant, and they get to know each other very well. And it's 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 really quite. I'm really enjoying the preparation. It's, I'm a little intimidated by the amount of things I have to say mm. because I get occasionally, I think, oh, well, I remember the words and all that. But um, it's really exciting. I have a feeling you're going to remember the words. Well, I certainly plan on working hard at it. I think you've done that your whole career. Yes, but I've managed to avoid too many words. <laughs> I've never been one to... Um, I didn't love big roles. Mm. I've often done smaller roles. I, I like the world with mixed... I'm, I, I don't know what it is. I learned early on that I didn't particularly like being in every shot because I couldn't enjoy the work. It was just rush, 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 rush. Mm. So somewhere between an enormous role and a big role is what I like. What was the Sidney Lumet quote? He said, there's no such thing as a small role. There's just small actors. Was that the, is that the phrase? That is. Is it? Yes. There's no such thing as a small role. Well, in other words, it was compliment. <laughs> it was a compliment, <laughs> meaning that I could make it into a, a decent role, which I quite honestly didn't feel I'd done at all when I saw the film. I thought it was a wasted remark. <laughs> well, I have to say that this, that's a good closing sentiment because you are remarkably uh, humble. You have a humility that I think most of us don't have. I don't know. Okay, well, thank you. Jacqueline, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Special thanks this week to Katrina Wan for uh, asking us to do this episode. It was an absolute honor. If you'd like to see Asher, Jacqueline's latest film, 
You can do so in theaters and on demand now. We'll include more info about the film and Jacqueline at our website at www.talkeasypod.com. As we near the end of this year, we're going to uh, promote some of our favorite conversations from 2018 on this podcast uh, through social media. So you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TalkEasyPod. You can also listen to the show now on Spotify. As always, it's on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcasts. The show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, social media by Ian Chang, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy, and I'll see you next week for one more episode with Keith David. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.